Uh, well, we're going to uh, switch gears uh, quite heavily here uh, and go into our next book of the Bible. I've been trying to give a summary of one book of the Bible each week. Um, yeah, wow. And uh, we've made it up to this book of the Bible. And I'll even tell you, as I'm coming into this book of the Bible, that I know I'm competing with a lot going on in our city this weekend. Uh, Fleet Week uh, is happening. Uh, Giants baseball. Uh, Warriors basketball got started. Uh, 49ers. Um, and, 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 yeah, Fleet Week uh, twice, or, or even more. Just keep, keep going back to Fleet Week. It's still going, I believe. <laughs> Um, and, and you may even be thinking, I can't wait to even go, you know, watch the, you know, my, my, my newest episode of Squid Game. I, I, I know. I, I, there's a lot that I'm competing with as I'm coming to try my best to talk about this little tiny book called Obadiah. What did you say? Obadiah is the name of this book. It's the smallest book in the Old Testament. Perhaps in your Bible reading, you might may have never even heard of it or read about it. Um, and I think that's a little sort of, you know, hyperlink there, uh, sort of my point, is that we want to sort of just go through all these books of the Bible and not just cherry pick which ones we think might be important or which one uh, myself as a pastor want to say some things about, but rather let's, let's cooperate. Let's cooperate with the author who has a story and let's sort of take that all the way back and, you know, hey, we don't understand what's going on in this story. We're sort of thrown into a story. There's characters. There's a protagonist. There's antagonist. There's lots going on. And so God is inviting myself as I'm preparing it, but also us as we're going through this together to intellectually engage with this story, uh, with this uh, existence that we find ourselves in as, as co-characters participants in this story. So all that's a big invitation <laughs> to go back and if you, if you haven't read Obadiah, give it a read. It's actually a four-minute read. And uh, here in just a moment, I'm going to read the whole book of Obadiah. You could actually leave here, hopefully not arrogantly. That's not the point, but hopefully you can say, we read at least one book of the Bible, the whole thing from start to finish in church. Uh, you did come to church after all, so uh, here we are. Um, one of the things that's happening in this book, uh, sort of by way of background, um, in the Old Testament, 13 Obadiahs. It's actually a popular name. So when you get to the book of Obadiah and you think, I've never even heard of this name. You have. Yeah, if you've been reading, you've probably heard of, heard of it. The 13 Obadiahs in the Old Testament, the name means worshiper of Yahweh, this uh, Israelite God, uh, the creator God, and so it means uh, worshiper. This um, Obadiah, the writer of this book, this prophet, he's writing into a context after Jerusalem has fallen to Babylon. Again, hyperlink. Go back and read what that history means and the implications for that. But this book is basically like a, um, a history lesson of the family of Abraham. And when we say that, you should be thinking Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Go, again, refer back to Genesis chapter 25 through 27, and there is going to tell the story of their, how should we say it, tense relationship. A relationship between Jacob and Esau. These are grandsons of Abraham. Hang with me. Please hang with me. You're thinking, how does all this even relate? We're going to get there. There's some huge implications for how all this relates. So there's a tense relationship there, and basically Jacob's descendants, you could call them Israel. Jacob's descendants, a.k.a. Israel or Israelites, 
Okay, I'm just tagging them as a people group and where they come from. And then this uh, Esau's descendants, guess who that is? That's called Edom. Edom, not like go Edom, uh, but Edom, E-D-O-M, Edom. And so they are the Edomites, okay? So what we see depicted back in Genesis 25 through 27, this tense relationship between Jacob and Esau, fast forward throughout history, we continue to see the same conflicting wars going on between Israel and Edom. And so um, a lot of... Uh, scholars um, are, are mentioning that according to the Talmud, that's the central text of the rabbinic uh, Judaism, is saying that Obadiah was an Edomite. He was an Edomite who had converted to Judaism. And so what better of a candidate would there be to write to these people? And so that's our audience. Uh, Obadiah isn't writing to uh, Israelites. Um, we modern-day folks, we can benefit from reading it, and we will, as we'll see. And Israelites would be benefiting as they were reading this portion of the Scripture. But primarily, it, it's not written to Israel or Judah. It's written to Edom. Uh, very first verse, first couple of verses there in, in the book, which we'll read in a minute. Um, and, and again, the Edomites were bitter, bitter enemies uh, with the Jews. Edom refused, back in history, Edom refused Moses' request to allow the Israelites to pass through their land on their way to Canaan. You may remember that. God rescues them, does something amazing, which he had promised that he would do. He, he fulfills his promise, and they're on their way to Canaan. Moses asked permission they would go through there, and they say no. I mean, there's, there's some tense relating going on there. Um, in history, as I studied a little bit about Edom and Edomites, anybody ever studied about Edom and Edomites? Okay, uh, me either. I did this week, and I'm still learning, by the way, and every time I get up here and try to speak or, or speak on the text, uh, please understand I'm still in process, I'm still learning uh, as well. But um, these people became known as the uh, Idumeans. So if you were to Google Idumeans, uh, you would probably see also a reference there to Edom and Edomites. The Edomite, these were people that worked in the spice trade. They lived close proximity to these trade, uh, these, these, these routes, and so they um, were incredibly wealthy, some of the most uh, wealthiest people in the ancient world. Uh, Herod the Great, as I continued my study, Herod the Great was also linked. His very roots were tied to the Edomians, and as we get to know that character, um, in the Bible, as well as a, a surface-level, cursory-level study of history, you would know um, of his wealth and, and perhaps explains why he's the way that he is, Herod the Great. Uh, and then out of nowhere, uh, learned that they start building these cities. They were a nomadic people, but they start building these cities, and one of those cities is called Petra. Ah, there's probably heard about that in the history lesson somewhere. Uh, Petra sits in modern-day Jordan. Uh, it's steep. There are these rocky cliffs, and its first inhabitants were these cave dwellers. Okay, so imagine... That And there's this rock fortress in Petra. And it would have been very hard for armies to get back in there and fight against those people. And so they thought it was impenetrable. Say that again. They thought it was impenetrable, those people. Okay. So major themes. And if this is feeling like it's moving kind of fast, it is. There's a lot here. Uh, major themes. There are four that I found, and as you study it, um, get back with me or someone else in our church and let's discuss more themes. But here's four. 
uh, all of which fall under basically one major theme, and that is salvation is from the Lord. Salvation comes from God. Um, the first feature of that is, it's the Lord who chooses. God in Old Testament, New Testament is saying, I will show mercy whom I show mercy to. I will actually harden uh, hearts. And it's God who places his love on Jacob and not Esau. That one's really hard and confusing to understand. But, but God is extending uh, his favor towards Judah and not Edom. And so again, this whole message here uh, is basically salvation is by grace. They're not supposed to work for it. Uh, you and I can't work for it, but it, it's going to come to people by grace. In fact, he says if God didn't choose you, you wouldn't, in response, choose God. Grace comes first, allows us to then even respond. And uh, it's almost like a lover who's so in love with you and so passionately pursues you and is so deeply committed to you um, that it's that love that they have for you that then motivates you to respond in love back to them. Um, the second major theme here is that the Lord is the final judge. Judgment is in the hands of the Lord. That, um, that alone drives us to the cross of Christ. In fact, I mean, that's one of the primary messages of uh, Christianity in the Bible is God is holy, God is just, uh, God hates sin, therefore we need a redeemer. We need someone who's going to restore a relationship again back with God, um, and that's Christ. So on the cross, it's, it's God's justice and God's mercy, kiss. They come together there quite beautifully. The third one is uh, a major theme. By the way, if you're just tuning in or just getting here, we're in the tiniest book in the Bible. And it's a four-minute read, and it's amazing things that's going to come out of it. So, um, glad you're tuning in. The, the, the third one, the third main uh, theme is that the Lord defends his covenant people. The Lord defends his covenant people. God's people don't need to avenge themselves. We don't need the avengers. We don't need to all gather together and figure out some plan. Um, you know, sort of, let's repay evil for evil. But it's God who defends, protects, delivers. God fights battles for his people, even when they don't even know that they're in a battle. God is their defender and, and strength. Um, the fourth and final theme I found in this book is the Lord blesses. The, uh, God places his blessing on Abraham, and that blessing that went to Abraham, remember this with me? What was it supposed to do? Was it just supposed to sit in his lap? Was he just supposed to get all warm and fuzzy with it and just, ooh, that's great. No, it was actually supposed to then flow through him to Jacob. And through Jacob to who? Eventually, the nations, all nations. And so Obadiah is pointing down the years from Abraham all the way to Jesus and to you and to all who will call upon him for salvation. That's what Obadiah is up to. Okay, ready? We're going to read a whole book of the Bible. Get ready. Uh, two main questions I'm trying to ask, and I invite you to ask questions as you go through this too. First main question is, what moves God to feeling upset? Yeah, God's upset. We're about to read about it. Second major question is, what moves God to restore? Okay, let's read. Obadiah. 
This is the vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord that an ambassador was sent to the nations to say, get ready, everyone, let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride. Because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains, who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully? But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. If thieves came at night and robbed you, what a disaster awaits you. They would not take everything. Those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor, but your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All your allies will turn against you. They will help to chase you from your land. They will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you, and you won't even know about it. At that time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. The mightiest warriors of Taman will be terrified, and everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. Verse 14. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nation will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. Verse 17, but Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place and the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. The people of Israel will be a raging fire and Edom a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. The exiles of Israel will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far as 
Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem exiled in the north will return home and resettle the towns of the Negev. Concluding in verse 21, those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom and the Lord himself will be king. Okay, if you're just waking up again, we're back. No. Um, Go back and there's so many hyperlinks in there. Again, I'm not attempting to address everything that's in here. I can't. Um, So I've chosen two main questions that we're trying to get after this morning. And that first question is, what moves God to feeling upset? Did you hear it when we read it? God seems pretty upset. And the second major question is, what moves God to restore? Okay, first one. Um, what is it? What did you notice? And if this were, if this were like a discussion session, I, I literally would maybe have a whiteboard up here and we, we would just sort of start writing out, what did you hear that's making the Lord upset? I invite you to kind of look back at it right now as we go through this. Um, okay, I'll give you a hint. Verse 3. Verse 3, there's human pride and self-security and self-exaltation that's going on. Prevalent, not only among the Edomites, but would you dare say, prevalent in us. Prevalent among our culture and in our day. Start asking those reflective questions. Please go with me here. This isn't all about just the Edomites. This isn't all just some academic study that we're doing right now. You'll miss most of what God's Word is trying to say to you. Verse 3 says, you have been deceived by your own pride. You ever had pride before in your life? Ever been arrogant so much so that you were blinded? You thought you knew. Um, I'll I'll put it personally. I I thought I knew. I I, I swore I knew the best way to go. Uh, Best thing to say. Um, It says, you've been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress And you make your home high in the mountains, and you say, who can ever reach us way up here? Well, literally, as we just learned earlier about the Edomites, they lived in this Petra, the city Petra. They were up there high in this lofted place uh, among the rocks. But see, metaphorically, pause, metaphorically, they felt superior. Ouch. Messages, message is hopefully just starting to break through here. The message isn't just, hey, you live in the heights. Therefore, God has a problem with that. That's our, that's our whole question here. What does God get upset about? It's not that you're wealthy. It's not that you live up in the heights. It's that you feel superior, Edom. You swear that you're superior. You're slick too. You wouldn't dare say it out loud. But inside your heart, your soul, exactly where God's able to see, you feel superior. There's an attitude of pride in your heart. You you think you're safe when you live in this cleft of the rock. What is a cleft? What is a cleft? A cleft is a small opening. A cleft of a rock is a small passageway that gets you into this safe place, this place of refuge, this place of safety and stability. And... I'm thinking of you and I when I ask this question. Where is it that we get security from? Where is it that we sort of carve out some little metaphoric place for ourselves where we find stability for our lives or security? 
Where is that? You need to take that question home. You need to think about that. I mean, we, we need to reflect on that question. But this cleft in the rock, these places where we go for security and stability, and dare we say all of us as humans are doing it. We, we, and I'm thinking of this old uh, Christian hymn. Maybe you heard of it uh, some years ago in church, or maybe even recently there had been some uh, usage, again, of this old hymn. But it's, it's called Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And of course the hymn is speaking, singing about Christ, Jesus Christ, who would end up being a rock for us. And all of humanity who would dare to call upon Christ as a rock of stability and identity for themselves. This hymn says, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That's your, go back and read the book of Psalms. Amazing, honest prayers happening in the book of Psalms. Incredibly an academic book, but also a very heartfelt, soul-oriented book. And in that book, the psalmist is repetitively saying, God, you are a rock. God, you are our hiding place. Let me hide myself there. Let me hide myself in you. Let my identity be surrounded by you. Let my stability be not my income, not my education, not my fill in the blank. Where are we getting that from? Where do you get that from? What do you run to? Uh, arrogantly, we sort of re- re- reply and retort back real quickly. And we say, I'm not running anywhere. I'm secure. I'm fine. I'm good. Verse 4, it carries on. What is it that's got God feeling upset here? Verse 4, he says, but, but even if you soar as high as the eagles and build your nest, verse 4 says, among the stars, I will bring you crashing down. Pride doesn't win. We've seen this week of a week of a week. We look at these books of the Bible. Pride does not win. Humility. Humility wins. And God is going to continue to love you and I when we're prideful in an effort to make us humble. He loves you that much. So human pride and self-security is going to fall before God's judgment. That's, that's part of the message here of of Obadiah. We do see God's retributive justice. Remember last week we talked about God's restorative justice? And I think this book here, Obadiah, comes back and helps us understand there is a retributive justice, part of who God is. It's not the predominant thing that we see in Scripture. It's a portion, a very small portion of God's justice. There's a retributive justice. Look at verse 15 and 16 with me and you'll see it. Verse 15 and 16, I, the Lord, will judge all the godless nations as you have done to Israel, like all that stuff you, Edom, did to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nation, you're gonna swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all the nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. If you go back and look at so many of these prophets that we've been looking at, right? We look, we've been looking at, I mean, there's been Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, this week is Obadiah, and in an upcoming is Malachi. All of them refer to Edom. Every single one of them is talking about Edom and this sort of doom 
and destruction that is coming against them. And uh, so I, I just sort of asked this question, historically, did it, ever, did it actually ever happen? I'm, I'm fast-forwarding a good bit, but probably a good time to do that. Historically, did Edom get destroyed? Yes. Edom was destroyed. It was in the next century that Edom was invaded, and they suffered wave after wave of invasions and essentially were never reconstituted as a nation. The very things that the prophets were saying actually took place. Why? Why is this gloom here? That's, uh, why, why is there going to be such a gloomy future? Look at verse 10. Great question. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 explains why there's this gloomy future. And by the way, this is the second thing that upsets God. That big question we're trying to answer. What is it that upsets God? Number two is there's no concern or care for their brother no concern whatsoever for their brother or their neighbor. Verse 10, God is saying to Eden, because of the violence you did to your brother, you have a gloomy future waiting for you. So again, the events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon, go back and try to brush up on that part of history, but according to those events, that family bond of Jacob and Esau is shattered is shattered because of the events that took place at the fall to Babylon. Um, here's the, basically the picture. Israel's invaded by Babylon. Israel starts fleeing. They start getting out of there. They start running. And one of the places that they run to is to Edom. They're running there. And perhaps someone in Edom is going to help us. And you know, what the, you know what the Edomites end up doing? Think about this picture. You're running there. We're all fleeing to get there. And the Babylonians are actually coming in there. And maybe it's these small nook and crannies of, of, of those rock formations that we're all just running. Let, let your imagination go in that direction. And the Babylonians get to one of the Edomites and say, have you seen them? Where did they go? And the Edomites are like going, they went that way. They went that way. Look at with me, verse 11. Verse 11 says, when they were invaded, you stood aloof refusing to help them. Okay, here's the point. If you haven't gotten it, we haven't gotten it already. It's not okay to stand there when people are suffering around you. It's just not okay. It's just not right. It's just not God's heart for you and I to just stand there. And I, I get historically this context is about uh, the Edomites. I get it. But there are implications for you and I. It's not okay to just be an onlooker, noticing it. You and I can see it clearly when someone is suffering. And I just choose to not get involved. Well, it escalates. They didn't just stand there aloof, it escalates. Look at verse 12, they gloated. They gloated about it. It says they smiled, they rejoiced when others were suffering. And they even spoke arrogantly. I mean, isn't that enough? No, it, it, it escalates again. It escalates. Verse 13. Then they joined the Babylonians in taking advantage of them. See, Obadiah is another prophet saying what God cares about. What God cares about. Remember last week when we looked at the book of Amos? What made God upset? Anybody remember what made God upset in the book of Amos? It was religious hypocrisy. They gathered together for worship, they sang loud songs, they brought sacrifices. And yet there wasn't justice flowing out of them. 
Martin Luther King Jr. would would eventually go on to quote that, you know, in in that famous speech that I want to see, God speaking, justice flow out of you like it's flowing down the mountains. God cares about people and how we treat people. It makes God upset when, when, when we don't treat people well. We're overlooking them when it escalates and we just not just overlook them, but we even participate in the systemic nature of it all and we, we actually take advantage of them. God is upset about this. But maybe this morning when I asked that question, what is God upset about? Maybe you thought, oh yeah, maybe God's upset with what I wear at church. No. Now you thought God is upset about all kind of things we've been told that God is upset about. As you get in the Bible, you get into this story of meeting this God, you begin to see that God hates religious hypocrisy. Go back and look at Amos. In this book, God is upset with how we treat people. I mean, what does it mean to care about people? There's another reflection question this week to just, to just think about that. Talk about that in a discussion group. Talk about it over a coffee appointment with someone. What does it mean? I consider the way that we, we treat these people. And of course we have different political views. Of course we have you know, different worldviews and perspectives, culture of origin, family of origin. The list goes on and on about how we may be different. So Obadiah's message to Edom, and of course we too can benefit as we're reading it, together this morning, but his message to Edom is, you're not taking care of your brother. You didn't take care of your brother. You've not even been good pagans. And Jesus ends up sort of quoting that. It's not a direct quote, but in Matthew chapter 5, he tells his listeners, primarily the Pharisees, who think they're doing all the great stuff, he ends up telling them, even the pagans take care of their own family. Edom, you're, you're not even being a good pagan. Do, do, do we hear sort of the, the baseline, sort of simple entry level about being a follower of God? As you care about the things that God cares about. So there in verse 16, if you're looking at that, there, there's, it's just, again, this reminder that all nations, all nations that act like Edom acted, will face God's judgment in the same way. They're going to fall from their heights. Again, whatever cleft of rock they're hiding in, finding identity in, it's going to come to an end. Ooh, I'm ready to move on to the second question. How about you? second question is, what moves God to restore? Oh, and by the way, you should know that um, the story doesn't end with that first portion there that we just talked about of what upsets God. By the way, a lot of folks reading the Bible uh, read a little portion of the Bible and they slam it shut and they say, see there, I knew it. I knew God was angry. And it just reminds me of a father or a mother or some teacher or some coach I had in my life and I, I feel abandoned and I feel on and on and on and on and on. This is reminding us There's more to God than that retributive justice part of God. There's a restorative justice part of God to restore things the way that they used to be. 
Okay, so what is it that moves God to do that? I'm just going to say it's, it's who he is. It's who God is to be a restorer. The scriptures are just replete with this part of who God is. He, he is a restorer. When we think about restoring, it means to, to sort of buy something back. It means to return something the way that it used to be. And the good news for us is that we didn't start, our story didn't start with chaos. It didn't start with suffering. It didn't start with disease. It didn't start with death. It didn't start with injustice. It didn't start with racism. It didn't start with all of those things that's stealing life from us. It started when God had created us. And we were experiencing a Hebrew word called shalom, which means perfect peace. That's our story. You maybe haven't heard that this week. The movies, the, the, the songs, the, the, the friends we're hanging out with, the culture that we're simply embedded in probably didn't remind us that our story started back, way back, when God created us. And the perfect shalom, the perfect relationship that we have with God and with one another and with the creation. The creation itself wasn't suffering like it is now. But because of the fall, or what the Bible calls the fall of humanity, sin enters our world and has catastrophic effects on every part of our humanity. Our sexuality, our politics, our financials, our everything is affected. And yet we see God as a restorer. God is on a mission, a successful mission. God is on a mission to restore and recapture and reclaim What's his? Verse 21, last verse in this book. Verse 21, last line of the book that expresses God's ultimate goal and is to establish his kingly reign over all the earth. His kingly reign. Some of us who, when we hear a king is coming or there's going to be some kind of reign or rule, immediately we sort of feel chafed and I don't know about that. Again, assumption is this king is going to harm me. This king is going to make me do things, steal my toys away, steal my identity away from me. And again, God as a restorer is doing just the opposite. God is loving you. God is pursuing you in, in, in such a way to, to restore you and I back to where we truly came from. You know the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. You've probably recited it in church or maybe you've memorized it or even prayed it. The Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer Jesus is teaching his disciples whenever they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. How then shall we pray? And Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then it says, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a beautiful prayer, and the prayer that you're praying, uh, whenever you pray that prayer, is that Jesus would indeed reign and rule in your life. And that that kingly reign, which is being talked about here in this last verse of this book, would bring restoration. Hear this, please hear this. God's judgment is never final. That's, that's, not, that's not the... Uh, 
takeaway from the Bible. If you've, if you've started reading the Bible and, and, and you, you're feeling, oh no, it, it feels like God is all about judgment and wrath. That, that, that's not the final message about who God is. God is a restorer. God seeks to restore shalom in your life that you're not experiencing, I'm not, we're not experiencing right now fully. All, all of the ways we betray and hurt each other, all the ways we neglect those who are suffering and overlook our neighbor who, who really needs help. This little book, Obadiah, this tiny little book of 21 verses, this forgotten little part of scripture contributes to the larger picture of God's restorative justice and faithfulness that we've been seeing in the rest of these prophetical books. You may remember the conclusion of Joel and Amos a couple weeks ago when we looked at uh, Joel. He, He painted a picture of what would happen after the day of the Lord against all the nations. He says, God will save Jerusalem and all who call upon his name. It's beautiful. So this kingly reign isn't just for a physical nation called Israel, like some place somewhere, but rather a people. Rather a people that's going to be comprised of all nations. And not even just a, ooh, aren't we so multi-ethnic and multicultural, even farther than that. Even farther than that. You look at Amos and how it ended. After the day of the Lord has judged Israel's evil, God will restore David's line and include some from all nations. That's how Amos ended. And so yes, here in Obadiah, Edom's fall is predicted and it happened. Their fall points to the day when God will deal with the evil in our world. Aren't you glad about that? Do you get get happy about that? Do you you even think about that? Do you get excited that justice will come one day? It's coming. God has promised it. It's hard to see it. It's definitely hard to feel it when everything around us is saying something totally different. Verse 17 even says, God's people will be a refuge for others. Wow. Are you a refuge for others? Are you being a refuge for others? Is that the the kind of person that that God is shaping and restoring you and I to be? Is, Is a person who's a refuge for others? A person that others could actually come to in a time of need. That's what happens when God begins to restore a a relationship with us is we then begin to give away what we've been given. We we now have a new ability to be patient with someone that I'm having trouble being patient with right now, but, but God's been patient towards me. I can forgive now, not because I'm some great new person, but God's forgiveness has forgiven me of so much. I can be a person of refuge because, God, you know I'm a refugee. You, you know I'm, I'm looking for identity. And what about the Israelites? What about the Israelites? Were they restored historically? Sort of like we asked for the Edomites. Did they experience God's judgment? Were the Israelites restored? It was prophesied. It was promised. Did it happen? Yes. Partial. There's a future one that's coming. And the partial one is uh, the same restoration that the, that the first century Christian apostles were talking about. Reference New Testament scripture. 
They're talking about a new kingdom that's coming. In fact, all the prophets are are pointing a finger saying, there's a king that's coming. There's a a new king that's coming. He's going to be different. He's going to establish a kingdom. And his justice is going to reign and rule. And so in the first century, non-Jews and Jews were all coming together under the reign of God in their lives. That's what gave them unity. That's what we as a church celebrate here in, in our midst in the midst of our diversity and cultural uniqueness that we all experience together. They realized first century that God was the one who gave meaning to their lives. God who came to this earth, Jesus Christ, that very one was and is for you and I the cleft in the rock that we need to be hiding in. We come full circle now. It's not because you live in the heights. It's not even because you're a strong person. Maybe that's who God's made you. It's where do you find that identity? What do you look to for your strength? And so that part uh, they did experience partially and, and the full effect of that restoration is to come. And that's the message of hope that you and I have in the Christian faith. And perhaps it's not talked about that much. Perhaps you've heard of salvation is let me just believe in God or believe in Jesus and I'll be saved. And whew, The view of salvation and Christ's view of salvation in the Bible is, has a much fuller arc, a much larger arc, and that is to bring a full restoration when Christ returns to this earth to renew all things, to restore broken relationships that you and I suffer with right now to restore the injustice that we get really angry about and to restore justice that sometimes we actually participate in and perpetuate. We're a part of the system. God is going to repopulate humanity with a remnant. He's going to repopulate humanity with a remnant from all nations. He will, as verse 21 says, he will be their king. Let's pray. Lord, there's way too much for us to take in right here. We just pray that you would help us hide in the cleft of the rock, Jesus, as our only true source of stability. Help us have concern and love for our neighbor and help us participate with you, a God who is in and on a mission to bring about restorative justice, to restore things back the way that they were and the way that you intend. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, bring an end to the evil in our world. Come Lord Jesus and restore all things back to its original beauty. And we look to you to do that. We pray for hope that you would remind us who we are and who you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.